these photos of you know 50 ships at anchor outside of the port of Los Angeles. That's a function of an increase in consumption that came along with COVID. This is Can Do, a podcast that explores the essential lessons for business success. As the world continues to feel the effects of the coronavirus, uncertainty and unpredictability have become the status quo. It has never been more important to learn from entrepreneurs and industry experts about their experiences and to hear their advice. Whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, or your career is affected by the current economic climate, lessons shared by our guests can help you make informed decisions about your future. I'm your host, Arnie Sherman. This past month, the White House released a report on the long-lasting impacts of the pandemic and climate change on the global supply chain. The global supply chain is the worldwide system that businesses use to produce products and deliver them to consumers. According to the report, the coronavirus pandemic and its ripple effects have snarled supply chains around the world, contributing to shipping backlogs, product shortages, and the fastest inflation in decades. The report from the President's Council on Economic Advisors further stated that while the pandemic exposed vulnerabilities in the supply chain, it didn't create them. And they warned that the problems wouldn't go away when the pandemic ends. What does this mean for U.S. consumers in the near and long term? What can be done to improve the situation? What factors will continue to impact production and transportation? Joining us today to discuss this topic that affects all of us is Richard Nicholson, Managing Director of Port and Terminal Investments from Macquarie Asset Management, the largest port and terminal portfolio in North America. Richard has 30 years of global experience in the transportation sector and has led over 25 port transactions globally, valued at more than $4.5 billion. He has worked and lived in the U.S., China, Russia, and South Africa. Support for this episode of CanDo is provided by the Dennis and Phyllis Washington Foundation, dedicated to investing in people to improve the quality of their lives. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. Richard Nicholson, welcome to the show. Where are you joining us from today? I'm in Fairfield, Connecticut this morning, honey. Well, it's good to hear you in uh, back east in the United States. It looks like it's a nice day there. Tell our listeners a little about your background and also a little bit about Macquarie's. Happy to. Um, well, actually, don't mean to put you on the spot. You were involved. Um, in 1989... I was uh, working in the political sector. I was somewhat of a political operative. I'd been on Al Gore's campaign staff in his presidential election in 88. And I was out in uh, Indiana running a a Senate campaign. In fact, it was for the seat to fill Dan Quayle's seat who had been appointed to the VP spot or invited to the VP spot by uh, George Bush. And uh, phone rang, and it was Arnie Sherman. Hey, Richard, how would you like to go to the USSR and work in the rail sector on the Trans-Siberian Railroad? It's a true story. And uh, a month later, I was on my way. It was January of 90. I was on my way. Arnie had committed 
three months. That's how long you'll be there. I was there 11 years. And uh, during that time, working with the US Railroad, by the way, CSX, during that time, we did establish a joint venture on the Trans-Siberian Rail Network, operating container trains, basically from the Sea of Japan to Eastern Europe. On the Sea of Japan side, the Soviet Union had no container terminal to handle those containers. So I was part of the team building one. Then we built another one. And now 30, day, 30 years later, I'm uh, still on the port side, uh, working in container terminal investment, development, management, and operations. So actually, Arnie, you, you were there 30 years ago, know it or not. It just seems like it was yesterday, Richard. <laughs> for our listeners, Richard went on to work for a number of companies uh, after we worked together. He went to work for Sealand, uh, which was a subsidiary of, uh, of uh, the CSX Railroad, and then on to, you can share with them the rest of the journey. Well, CSX, which where it started, as Arnie mentioned, owned Sealand. Sealand was the last U.S. flag container steamship line. Uh, it was bought in uh, 10 years later in, uh, in the year 2000 or end of 99 by Maersk Line, which I'm sure many of your listeners, Arnie, are familiar with. They've seen those container trucks on the highway with the big blue star. That's Maersk Line, the, uh, the Danish carrier. Uh, Sealand was, when it was in operation, was the largest container line in the world. Uh, Maersk, the Danish line, was number four, but when they purchased Sealand, they vaulted into that number one position. Um, I stayed with them uh, until 2000 uh, in the Soviet Union and then Russia through that period of change and, uh, and then went on to China with Maersk. Uh, we formed a special terminal or ports division called APM Terminals, named after Maersk's, Maersk Muller's father, Arnold Porter Maersk, and um, stayed there for uh, six years, seven years in China, up and down the coast, then transferred to Africa, where we had or developed seven terminals, uh, two in Nigeria, um, Angola, Ivory Coast, Ghana, Cameroon, a couple others, um, back to Asia. And then uh, just about 10 years ago, uh, my kids were getting to high school age. And so we rotated back here to the US and I've been on the East Coast since then. And Arnie mentioned in, the, in his uh, opening comment that I work for Macquarie. Macquarie Infrastructure, is part of the Macquarie Group based in Sydney. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a standard global investment bank. However, Macquarie Infrastructure is the leader in basically aggregating and then deploying pension fund capital into heavy steel and concrete investments in infrastructure. Um, I say pension fund because they look for steady returns. It's not private equity. It's not something that can absorb 
great swings in its return spectrum, but rather is more uh, steady and conservative. Hence, you know, bridges, railroads, tunnels, and ports. So for our listeners, you work for an Australian-based investment company that manages assets, but you've never lived in Australia. That's right. I visited quite a few times, not since COVID came along, but no, I've never lived in Australia. So you've seen the transportation system globally firsthand in Asia, in Africa, in North America, in Europe. What's the state of the global supply chain today? You know, the global supply chain is in pretty good shape. Um, I mean, pretty good shape everywhere. It has adapted and developed over the years to accommodate, you know, the growth in trade um, and uh, and transportation. So it's in it's in it's in pretty good condition, um, but it's a little bit out of whack right now. And uh, your listeners will have they can't help but have having seen over the last six eight months on television in the newspapers. Uh, these photos of you know 50 ships at anchor outside of the port of L- Los Angeles, uh, traffic backing up. That's a function of an increase in consumption that came along with COVID. Not necessarily a kind of a linear connection between those two things, a pandemic and the increase in consum- consumption. But in short, put it this way, people staying at home due to the pandemic had more time to shop online than they ever had before. And since you had all day, uh, you're on your screen, whatever you're doing, you can just uh, digress over to another screen and buy a pair of sneakers or a shower curtain or anything else that you hadn't got around to buying before. There's been a 10 to 14% across the board increase in consumption in North America uh, as a result of COVID. And that has led to greater traffic on the system that wasn't designed to absorb that, or wasn't ready to absorb that 10 to 14% increase. Well, didn't the pandemic also lead to certain kinds of uh, uh, diminutions in the personnel working in the supply chain system, like truck drivers? You know, many American truck drivers that we know didn't get vaccinated, couldn't go to Canada. Even before that, Canada was kind of shut off. So there were obstacles created in the system by um, people leaving and by COVID restrictions that caused uh, um, a backup in the delivery of products and keeping uh, grocery shelves full. Even today, if you go into a Walmart or a Costco, there are certain items that are not on the shelves that you would have seen a few months ago or, or a year or two ago. Arnie, you're absolutely spot on. You know, so the supply, so look, everything originates in China. Think about it that way. Okay, 85% everything that we consume. Um, so far, so good through the Chinese ports across the Pacific eastbound, unless it goes through the Suez Canal, in which case it can come transatlantic to the US East Coast. But, and then it hits the port, still okay but then it has to move inland. It's what we refer to as inland connectivity. It starts from the minute you unload the vessel. So yes, 
the first shortage of labor was longshoremen. Longshoremen are assigned what they call in gangs and those gangs man the cranes that you see when you're, you know, if you're in New Jersey in Newark on the New Jersey Turnpike, if you're in LA or Oakland, you see those big kind of hulking container cranes. Uh, they take anywhere from uh, six to eight, 10 men per crane, and then another crew behind them. Well, with the pandemic, uh, the labor available in the longshoremen's halls, union halls, was dramatically reduced. So the number of gangs that could work a ship were also respectively reduced. So yeah, that was a big problem. But there are, there are other places where there were labor shortages in the system. Like where, for example? So I talked about inland connectivity from the port. It really goes in three steps, port to truck or port to rail. And then it rails across America, halfway across America, let's say to Chicago, kind of the Midland market. And at that location, those rail cars and, and, uh, and, and trucks have to be unloaded into what we call the big box store warehouses or predominantly Amazon warehouses, if you will. The second place where the labor shortages hit, didn't have enough people to man the warehouse, can't get those containers unloaded quickly outside of the warehouse. And as a result, the empty containers and the empty rail cars and trucks don't get returned to the port and then they can't be sent back to Asia. So the second place of the kind of labor induced log jam is at the warehouses, the distribution centers. Well, you mentioned the warehouses and distribution centers. In this last quarterly report, Amazon took its first loss in a long time. And uh, I think it was probably a combination of inflation and the fact that people were now out and about more and not buying online as much. Has that helped the logistics system at all? We haven't had, surprising. I mean, and with, you know, I won't say COVID's over, but, you know, the country has normalized. And I, you know, I travel back and forth east to west coast. Uh, we no longer need to wear masks on the plane as of a week ago or so. So things are normalizing, um, but, volumes, consumable volumes, which move in containers have not turned down whatsoever. They're still strong and they're still running again, 10 to 14% above where the kind of long-term norm is. We speak because we work closely with our shipping line customers to their customers who are you know, the major stores in the country. Home Depot, Federated Stores, you name it. And uh, we asked their sales and traffic manager, you know, wh when is it going to stop? When is it going to? And all of them are saying now, as far into the horizon that they can see, it's continuing. And that horizon at the moment is about six months. So in our planning in the ports, we're assuming no downturn, at least for another six months. And are we still seeing in May 50 ships anchored waiting to get into ports? There's a fewer number. You remember it went up to, it actually went up to 100 in LA 
that number is down now to 40 to 50, something like that. We're able to kind of catch up. Uh, some of the shipping lines skipped sailings in order to allow that line to kind of to, to shrink. And you rightly pointed out, so labor is back and we're now working uh, the typical ship with four gangs instead of two. So that has brought the, uh, the line down. However, uh, interestingly, there's now a backup on the East Coast as well. We had a little bit less than a dozen. I think there were nine ships at anchor waiting to get into New York, New Jersey this past week. And down south, it's, it's really Savannah and Charleston with Charleston having the greater uh, number of ships at anchor. So everybody's concerned about inflation. You know, the, uh, the President's Council of Economic Advisors are trying to deal with it. The Fed's trying to deal with it by increasing interest rates. And probably for our listeners, one of the things that influences all this is that every one of these ships that sits out in the harbors waiting to come into the port are racking up costs. So the costs of shipping have increased, I would say from what I've seen, fairly dramatically. Is, is that really the case? Absolutely. Um, think about it this way. So international shipping, container shipping, the shipping lines, they have three major buckets of cost. They have uh, port costs to unload and load their ships. They have the cost of the vessels themselves, which these days, that's really about financing costs, but they're massive. Remember, each container ship costs about $200 million to build. And these, these shipping lines have three and 400 ships each. So we're talking about a significant investment. And then the, the third bucket is fuel. And fuel is the one of the three that the shipping lines are least able to control. They just are market takers. And right now, those prices for bunker fuel are tracking up a little bit behind the prices of gas increase, but they're starting to increase. So ships at anchor means you have significant investment, not generating revenue, but you're still paying the financing and fuel costs are going up. Isn't it more than like a quarter of a million dollars a day per ship that's sitting out there? It depends on the size of the vessel. And in the US, we don't have the big 18 and 20,000 TU unit uh, container vessels that, that are financed at that level. But you know, relatively speaking, a little bit below. So instead of an 18,000, we have predominantly 14,000. So a little bit less, but in that direction, yes. And, and so it costs a lot for them just to be sitting there waiting. You're paying crew charges and you're paying demurrage, uh, 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 as they, uh, you call it in, in uh, generic terms, that the cargo and the goods aren't getting to the, uh, to the companies and now to the consumers. It's hard to imagine. You know, I said 10 to 4, I mentioned 10 to 14% a couple of times this morning. You know, it doesn't sound like that much. But remember, we are the largest consuming economy in the world. Everybody wants to sell here. We consume everything. Uh, a 10 to 14% jump is massive. 
And that has in turn sucked in all available ships anywhere on the water. If you own a ship, even if it's 30 years old and it floats, you can put it to use today. Ships are just not out there. So I can respond to your previous question a little bit more. A, a, a smaller container vessel, let's say four to 5,000 units, uh, which are not even used except under these extreme circumstances where there's such shortages, you can't possibly find one today for less than $50,000 a day, minimum. Hmm. So they're, they're really just priced right out of sight. I'm speaking with Richard Nicholson of Macquarie Asset Management. Support for this episode of Can Do is provided by Montana Rail Link, committed to safely delivering transportation solutions to their customers and partners. Additional support comes from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. And Parsons, Bailey, and Latimer, a regional law firm with national experience, representing the interests of Montana entrepreneurs and businesses. More information at ParsonsBailey.com. So has the pandemic, as we're coming out of it, has it pointed out other problems that had been masked before that? With respect to transportation, I, I take your question. Yes. I think it's just the fact that our system, while it had been accommodating levels of trade flow, you know, of course it can accommodate shocks to the system if those are contraction, because it just has less volume. But what it's not able to do is a massive increase. And just, just think about it, if you can, this way. Um, you know, your typical um, uh, six-lane highway in whatever metropolitan area you live in in the U.S., three lanes of traffic in each direction, and, um, and a, a number of cars that has that highway completely full, traffic jam at rush hour in the morning and the afternoon, but it works. All of a sudden, you increase that volume by 10%. What you actually need is an eight-lane highway. That takes a long time to put in place. That's what we're facing today. So as you're looking at things, you've, you saw it before, um, pandemic, you're seeing it now with this like 14% surge that's kind of caused these uh, issues. So which part of the supply chain needs the most improvement as you're looking at it? I think there are two things. Uh, and, and, you know, this is really a hot topic right now. There's the president's initiative on infrastructure. Uh, Mitch uh, Landrew from uh, Louisiana, the former mayor, is uh, now heading up that uh, infrastructure effort for the president. Um, and they're going to be allocating funding to major infrastructure projects. Um, they've come to us, we port operators, asking uh, what, we, what we thought about that. We've actually tried to steer them in the direction of uh, trucking and rail because it's the inland connectivity that can't quite handle it. Um, you know, the ports are working okay. The, uh, the, the, the number of ships in the water is holding up, but it's really uh, rail, rail infrastructure, trucks, which are trying to be converted to electric right now. 
So at the very time that they're going through the conversion, they need more. But if I can just take it in a different direction, there is one place where the U.S. has a shortcoming. Our ports, everything about our ports, are built to handle ships that need 50 feet of water, uh, basically 49 feet of, of draft. And the largest ships in the world that have the lowest unit cost for transportation, um, they can't come to the US. Instead, they sail only Asia to Europe, Europe to Asia. All the Asian ports have 60 feet of water. All the major European ports have 60 feet of water. We have a big structural shortcoming in the US that relegates us to smaller vessels, which does create a higher unit cost for every container that moves uh, transatlantic or transpacific. Are any of these ports able to dredge, be dredged so they get down to 60 feet or is that a, a, diff, a, a t insurmountable task? They are, they are. And you know, bear in mind when you, when you increase water depth to increase ship size, then you need to increase crane size because the cranes are, because the ships are bigger, right? And to do that, you need to strengthen the wharfs, the kind of the marine structure. So dredging that extra 10 feet has a lot of knock-on effect to it. Um, all of the ports are capable of, go, of going to 60, but it's gonna be a, a, a long-term and a significant uh, investment of time and resources. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, the gangs of longshoremen and, you know, truckers leaving the industry. Is, uh, is the uh, remote operating of trucks or, or autonomous driverless trucks in the future? Or, or is there a plan to, you know, expand the number of truckers that, that are potentially available to drive uh, across the country? Yeah, two things that you mentioned there. I mean, first the electrification and automation of trucks. You know, on the one hand, it's underway, but we are not there yet. I mean, in terms of safety, capability, um, we have a long, long way to go. We're trying to electrify everything that's diesel in the uh, container ports up and down uh, the three Atlantic, Pacific and Gulf Coast here in the US. Um, so we're able to do that with handling equipment and, and other things. But over the road trucks, it's, uh, it's going to take a while. And the safety issues on automation are going to be big. The second thing, I could have mentioned this earlier when you, when you asked about results uh, uh, or effects of the pandemic. You know, those coast-to-coast -coast truck, truckers, they don't want to go coast-to-coast -coast anymore. In fact, they kind of got used to being at home. <laughs> they, they don't want, you know, they'll take a couple runs per day, but like, they like to start the morning with their family and end the day with their families like everybody else. So what that's doing is it's driving more cargo long distance in North America to rail. And that's a good thing because that rail is electric and does not contribute to the emissions issues that, that we have today with, with trucking. So 
there, let's just put it this way. Who am I to say good thing or bad thing? But the truckers are trying to spend nights at home. There is less long distance and there is a kind of a long-term evolution to more rail. You know, from a 30,000 foot perspective, looking at the US and our infrastructure and a lot of the infrastructure issues and needs are related to moving goods and products to consumers. Richard, if you were advising Mayor Landrieu, who is now advising the president on infrastructure, what would your advice be? You're referring to infrastructure investment yes. uh, right, right now. You know, everybody wants shovel-ready projects. I mean, if you're going to really have an impact, you got to get out there today and start turning this infrastructure around. It's, it's not the time to, you know, go to the drawing board with, with new concepts. That's very long-term. So um, we're at least aware enough to know that the group working with the former mayor and now head of head of the uh, of the infrastructure uh, commission it's not the exact title but to that effect um, what they're really out there for now and encouraging anybody that has you know credible large infrastructure plans on the table and ready to go now's the time to get to washington get it in front of the committee and have consideration given because this is the time that uh, the administration is really committed to making it happen. As consumers face the issue of rising prices and the fuel costs affecting those prices and um, delays in the transportation system for the reasons we've talked about, what bright spots? I mean, when does this all go back to, you know, quote unquote normal or the way we, we have been used to seeing things? Well, sorry, Arnie. Crystal ball is not something on on my end of this of this uh, phone call. But um, you know what caused that explosion of consumption? I mean, COVID itself or the pandemic. But at the, at the very beginning, when it first happened, one thought, which I thought was legitimate was not only was everybody staying home, but the government was providing checks uh, into those potential consumers' hands and they spent it. And, and that at least was a big contributor to the jump. Now, the jump up in consumption. But what's interesting, I mean, I work in a, in a corporate office setting I've been back to the office twice in the last two years. And, and that's the norm. Um, there, there are just not that many people or not that many companies that have either required or have 100% of their workforces going back. It doesn't mean that people are staying home and not working. They've just found different ways to work. And that has changed the economy somehow. Um, I think it's not particularly good for local commuter rail, for example, with uh, uh, rail cars uh, going into the city and back out, you know, half empty 
although they can adjust the fleet uh, to accommodate the demand. On the other hand, those folks that are working at home and have found ways to, to complete their, their job requirements at, at home have more time to focus on you know, quality of life, um, quality of life uh, endeavors, and you know, consumption then goes up for things like bicycles and you know gyms and uh, and 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 that type of of activity that requires equipment. The second point is that along with that increase in consumption, when people were stuck at home, there was a drop in service in in the service sector, and everything that we see and we have economic advice that we use in order to plan what's gonna be happening with the ports. But what we see now is a swing back from, or our economists see, a swing back from that really strong overheated consumption to more spending on services. So that could have an easing on the supply chain. Well, you mentioned an important point, which is there is a, a fundamental shift and you're a good example. You haven't been back to the office in twice in, in two years. There's a whole, and, and your office is in, in New York city. So there are a lot of people like you. Last time I was in New York, I was in a hotel room looking out an office building and there wasn't anybody in any of the offices. You know, that has an effect on real estate. It has an effect on all of the service businesses in the city, the places that serve breakfast and lunch to all of those workers and employees the parking garages, there, you know, there's a whole ripple effect of that. That gets transferred, as you just pointed out, to buying bicycles or doing something, you know, more local in your home area or truckers not wanting to do cross-country trips anymore. So this shift that's taken place as a result may, in fact, have long-lasting effects and require sort of a, a recalibration of the you know, entire economic system that, that we, we were used to seeing. You know, and again, um, no crystal ball in this end. But when it started, we looked to the major retailers, traffic officers, and to the major shipping lines. These are the people that really have their pulse on not only consumption, but on manufacturing manufacturing in China. Um, we looked to them for some indication and they were all saying, we can see th this is gonna last three months. Then that changed to at least three months. And over the past two years, that three months has, has lengthened because it's not come true and it hasn't fallen off. And I mentioned at the beginning of the program that today we can see at least six months out. We have a six month horizon. That's not just, just kind of horizon gazing. What that means is orders for input to production at the manufacturing facilities in China that, have the, that are producing the goods that are gonna be here for Christmas 2022. Those we can see in advance and we can tell that at least six months is not gonna drop off, but there are no indications popping up anywhere on the horizon that it's gonna fall right after that. So, 
you know, if we were betting, which we try not to do, we kind of plan that we have to accommodate a continued overheated pressure on the supply chain beyond uh, six months from today, you know, beyond third quarter, well into fourth quarter of 22. Richard, that's a good place, I think, to uh, end our conversation for today. Great catching up with you. It's uh, great to get your uh, perspective and input on on these topics and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Arnie, thanks for having me. I appreciate your listening to Can Do, produced by Lena Beck in association with Montana Public Radio. For comments, recommendations for future guests, or general information, please go to mtpr.org. There you'll find previous guest contact information and content from all our shows. Listen next time and I'll talk with another insightful guest. I'm Arnie Sherman, wishing you good health and prosperity.